Welcome to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is David Shaw, who helps run the Appalachian region for the Pathfinder Society games. Uh, we talk in this episode about a king maker cat uh, running, obviously, a table for new uh, players at conventions and the future of RPGs. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, one and all, to a new episode of my RPG podcast. Today's guest is David Shaw. David, will you please introduce yourself? Uh, I'm David Shaw. I'm the uh, regional venture captain for the Appalachian region for uh, Pathfinder Society. Yeah, David and I actually just recently met at a local convention of mine that I had the pleasure to uh, attend very often. It's DragonCon. And I thought David would be a great resource to talk about um, running kind of big, open public games, especially at conventions. And obviously, get more Pathfinder content here because I know you guys get a, a fair share of D&D content and all their RPGs as well, like Open Legend. But I want to give Pathfinder some love. So, David, what was your beginning in regards to RPGs? How did it all start? Um, well, I can actually say I've been doing this, uh, 35 years. So, uh, 1980, 1981, I started with, uh, D and D basic red books, um, and pretty much have not stopped since then. I did a lot of D and D gamma world star frontiers back in those days and have played pretty much any game system that's come across my plate since then. Man, that's an amazing track record. What were you always like into fantasy stuff like that when you were getting into it? Um, I was a little bit. My uh, my mother's actually a medievalist, so I sort of encountered it from a very young age. Um, and she introduced me to uh, again the actual you know historical medieval. And then uh, my dad was a sci-fi person and had always read that. So between the two of them, I sort of found my way that way. But um, actually, they had uh, the red books in my fifth grade gifted class, um, and we actually got to play it in that gifted class. And that's the first place I encountered it. And then immediately bought it at home and started playing with some friends of mine and uh, and sort of have gone from there. Man, I think that would be great if RPGs was like content for schools as well. I think there's a lot of great things that uh, could have come from that. And it seems like you came from uh, a big nerd family anyway. Nerdiness was in kind of your blood. You had no choice. Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, being the son of, of two professors, it certainly was. I, I was headed that way regardless. <laughs> So what were your first games like in regards to kind of either the makeup of the party or like the type of ventures you guys like to run? Was it mostly hack and slash? Was there role playing involved? What was that all like? Um, well, way back in, in the beginning there, it was very much more, I mean, at school, they tried to do a little bit more role play because that was sort of, I guess, the point of, of learning, not only, you know, learning it both as a technical system and to sort of interact with your students. But me and my friends, I mean, it was, we were very young. So it was very hack and slash, you know. All characters had all 18s and, and bad names and, and you sort of, you know, got, you know, Monty Hall loot and, and all that. But that to me, I mean, as I got into high school, that changed. I got much more into the, you know, the role playing and the ROLE as far as that goes and really getting into that aspect of it and started encountering games like Vampire the Masquerade. And so went into a little bit that where that was much more important and sort of have never gone back you know, from that since then. Yeah. So you got into vampire, were there other RPG systems that were big at the time or was that something that only came later for you? 
Um, that was we did that. Uh, really, I did a little bit of Vampire. It was mainly D and D, and again, Gamma Worlds and Star Frontiers. Uh, for a while there in the beginning, is sort of the local groups, and then D and D sort of was the common language. So that was what I was going to play most of it with. Um, beginning college, I got into a group of Rollmaster and did that for almost 15 years consistently. So I played a lot of that. But again, any game that went by, whether it be, you know, I did card games as well, but any RPG, and I played Champions and Palladium and Ro Robotech and Rifts and, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much Werewolf, it, it, a bunch of different stuff, just sort of whatever it would go by. Were you a GM or player early on, and how quickly was there a transition if you went from one to the other? Um, I preferred playing for a long time, so I sort of was a reluctant DM in the beginning. Um, we needed, you know, DMs weren't available, and I wanted to continue gaming, so I sort of fell into that role. Uh, one of my friends that I met in middle school, uh, my best man at actually my wedding, was an incredible GM. So once we met, you know, in seventh grade, pretty much he was my GM for almost 20 years after that. So I never had the need to, to be the GM. So I, I didn't, I instead could get very deep into a single character and live in his very immersive world. Um, but then as time goes on, things changed. And again, GMs were needed and certainly I, I have a, a skill for improvisation. So I started sort of running from there. Yeah, David, I think you're very unique in the regard that you can say you've played with the same GM for 20 years. I just have to ask for my own personal wants and uh, curiosity because I'm four years in deep in one of my games and I have all these moments to where I'm like, how can I, I, I keep this fresh and keep this interesting? Because like, I'm, I'm exhausting my bag of tricks by this point. How did you guys keep it fresh and interesting in the game with the same GM for that long? Um, well, I mean, some of it was, I mean, I, I have to give credit to the GM. I mean, he certainly was very skilled in that. Um, I think a lot of that comes with rolling with the players that then when they, you can't have, he was very good about not ha having a framework, but not a rigid structure. So often we would wander off completely off his adventure as players do into some completely different thing. And he was able to sort of develop that. But at the same time, I mean, I know from playing that long, he would sometimes that plot would still continue and he would actually work it in another place. I mean, many, many years later, actually, he would still keep that idea and things and bring it back in. It was more appropriate when we got there. Um, it was also Rollmaster, which be, is a very deadly system. So there certainly, although we were playing in the same world, we would occasionally have where entire parties would be killed or most of a party would be killed. And we would decide to go to a different region of that world, like the Oriental region or a different thing that had different aspects. And so there was an overarching plot, but it still it made it fresh because occasionally we would move on to different characters in the same world. So you get continuity, but not the same characters. So you still get that that fresh aspect. I'm pretty sure that definitely helped as a GM. I think the, the most interesting thing in even my four year game was the fact that I've had players retire which means that they're still in the world, just not, you know, the player character, sorry, the player is not playing the character, which is interesting because then you go back into a new campaign or another session in another part of the world and they should stumble into that city or should stumble around that region of the other person. And you have this interesting thing about like, oh, great. So what have they been up to in, you know, the past couple of years in world or how do I role play what they're doing or maybe role play them out so I don't have this weird sort of crossing of the streams of the same character meeting his other character and whatever, you know. I've got several games. Actually, I'm running a D&D &D game right now, and I've got several people that have decided to switch characters. And 
I've used some of them as motivation. I mean, some of them were captured by the villains and killed. Um, one of them is currently actually teaming up with the villains and will probably join that side. I mean, as soon as you retire them, they become my property. So, yeah, I'm a big proponent of of utilizing those things to to sort of see, you know, see that different aspect. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that it has a lot of emotional weight to it um, for the player as well, because obviously they've put in X amount of months, if not years, into that character. So any decision you make with it, they uh, they subconsciously are always wanting that character to do well or to be all right. So you can manipulate them. And yeah, then... <laughs> correct. <laughs> um, but so... So as you're growing up uh, and you're getting into more systems, uh, like you're mentioning, things being kind of role heavy, and you're kind of character, you're emphasizing character over, let's say, mechanics uh, and things like that. How do you, how do you transfer transfer over to Pathfinder? Because Pathfinder is something that's usually associated with wanting more mechanics and more modifiers and more technicality. Well, I think I mean when it comes to I mean truthfully, depending on your your gaming environment, any you know it is, an RPG is what it is, and so. If your group is is for you know that that role playing experience, then you can get it in any system. I think I like systems that are pseudo technical because I think it allows you to again, it's that framework. It allows you to build a character and you can see it. So you know, one of the problems occasionally I have with fifth edition is that the the fighters to me they're they seem mechanically very similar even if you switch to very distant archetypes and so you can't sort of you know have the system support those little small details that that you think and so i liked role masters i mean sorry uh, pathfinder and role master for the same reason for having that sort of depth having those archetypes that you know well i'm not just a thief i'm a thief acrobat i'm a thief you know street performer so i can make a character that sort of rolls that direction so the support sort of helps you, you know, work together. So you get both the mechanics and the role playing. So I, I think there is another type. My other, you know, my other passion is a game like a Savage Worlds, which are very rules light or even a fate, or I've played some diceless RPGs. That also is great for that, but that's a different game to me. It it doesn't lead to the structure. The structure does help move the game along a little bit more. And I, that's why I like systems like that. Yeah, I think definitely with my experience with Pathfinder, it's, I'll say the system does kind of help inform the character decision a little bit more because the system does refine the character decision. And not just in Pathfinder, I think older editions of Dungeons and & Dragons and other systems do this as well, mm -hmm. to where you know you can really lean hard into maybe a specific sort of character or character archetype. So that way, you, you know, like you mentioned in 5e Fighters, all feel kind of the same. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're really putting a lot of points into one specific aspect or one specific ability, then your character has to justify why they're so good at that. And then they refine what they are. I'm not just a rogue. I'm a, you know, like you mentioned, a performing street performer rogue, as opposed to, you know, this, you know, dark, you know, shadow subterfuge uh, assassin rogues, right? Correct. And, and I think it really, and, and especially, I mean, again, since I do a lot of organized play, that helps there as well, because I mean, one of the, advantages disadvantages of organized play is that you don't have a time to be you're not playing a campaign that you're playing for five years so you can't get into the very super nuances of, of a role playing so you you make caricatures instead of characters in some sense because you have to be able in one minute to sort of sum up the role playing because you could be at a table with complete strangers that don't know this character from time to time and having that system like you said to tag on to means that 
when you describe the role playing and then describe the mechanic where they may not understand the role playing piece because that's new to them, they understand the mechanics. So that gives them sort of a, a, it allows them to better define your character in a very short period of time. Yeah, I love the way you kind of mentioned that, uh, how it ties to uh, playing in large groups and uh, conventions, because I've always said on multiple episodes, if you're an avid listener, I, I, as a DM or GM, you should use archetypes and cultural references and other media as your shorthand, which will help, you know, your characters pick up on what you're trying to explain to them or the idea you're trying to convey, and also helps the other characters around the table pick that up too. So you can, you know, very quickly get into whatever the adventure or the task or the quest or arc is that you're trying to go through so yeah that, i think the system is really great for that regard and since you kind of opened it up a perfect segue for us when was the first time you got involved with organized play or big group play um actually it was the it was at dragon con 2000 can't remember if it was 11 or 12 and then uh I, i'd done a little bit before that i mean again a little bit of dnd at various conventions over time but i i didn't really wasn't really part of that society and then just had a Sunday off. I'd been going to Dragon Con for many years before that and had some time on Sunday and decided I was playing Pathfinder in a home game and decided I would go play a game and actually played with one of my players. I mean, here locally introduced me to it and just really enjoyed that sort of aspect, being able to sit down, had some great players at the table that were doing some great role playing. And then also conveniently at the time, it was, I mean, some of it was practical. I didn't really have time to do a consistent game where I could meet every week. We were trying to do that. It just wasn't working out with my home group. And so having a game that was episodic that, you know, I, I had a, a new son at that time. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, how I could make get some games, but not be holding the whole gaming group back because I didn't make that week. And so we all don't play. And Pathfinder Society really lended it to, okay, I can make it this week. I signed up. I'm great. I made it the next week. You know, and, and then, but if thing, if life got in the way, if I wasn't there, there were other people to fill that table. And so it really fit that. Now, again, that eventually failed because then I started making every game and really want to do, had some really great GMs uh, here in Atlanta as well. So uh, <laughs> that was a great theory in the beginning. In the end, I probably spent more time than I would on a home game, but it was, it was good time. But it is interesting that how that happened, how you went from something, a thing of convenience, at which you can do, you know, um, a la carte versus now a thing that's you're way more committed to than you otherwise would have been. It's kind of funny how that turned out, right? It, it is. And, and again, I think a lot of that also had to do with the people that were running at the time, the people I was playing with. My The primary GM that, that I was jamming with Atlanta is actually uh, John Compton, who was uh, the creative director for Organized Play. He went out to work for Paizo and is now the person who runs... Uh, is the the director for all of Starfinder now, and he is again an incredible GM and in, and in the community that they had built up. And it was just like, well, yeah, I do want to I want to spend a lot of time with these people, and then I wanted it, you know, also seeing them is what made me want to give back as well. So, so you started organized play kind of in the latter half, only more recently in your um, time as a RPG uh, aficionado. What then creates the transition to um, becoming somebody who actually helps in administrating that and running that? Is it just because you were there so often? Um, yeah, that's part of it. I mean, well, I mean, again, it depends whether you'd want the 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 the, the mental think of why I would do it, or or there's the the tale of why it happened. Which is I mean, as a GM and as a 
podcaster i'm of both worlds like i love to hear the tale and the epic story with the hero's journey but i also would do want to understand the logistics too yeah okay well let me quickly the tale just because i, I don't know it's something you want to talk about you know you sort of create your own head canon so um the reason i would argue that i i became a, a venture officer was because um i inherited the cat of succession so mike brock who was the original person who ran organized play for um was the venture captain in atlanta um got hired by paizo and was going to run all of organized play in seattle so when he did that he had a cat that he couldn't take with him uh toby and he passed that cat on to his venture lieutenants which were nani and, and kyle pratt um and they became vcs of atlanta and began to run all Path pathfinder society in atlanta and he went off there to see at uh, seattle to run all of organized play well, about that time, they sort of, we had been playing with it. And then they then, for other reasons, decided to move to Seattle as well. They also couldn't take Toby because they were moving into an apartment. So they passed that on to me um, at the same time that they also gave me the venture lieutenant title. So I've had Toby now for almost five, six years. Um, and every time that I think that that his magic is is gone, he then... Again, I then became a venture captain, and then when I decided to back off a little bit and and return to venture lieutenant and have the local person become a venture captain, I figured the magic of Toby, the cat of succession, was gone. But no, as it turns out, there was one more burst of magic there, and and, and hence I am now a, a regional venture captain. So I have offered it to many other people and said, if you would like this this cat, he has the magical ability to give you you know much responsibility with little power but uh people haven't taken me up on it yet <laughs> toby's definitely the kingmaker i see <laughs> he, he is as far as i as i could tell so um practically it was i was around people who were very dedicated to what they do they were very good at it and i could see and again i've always been a bard in some sense so i mean talking to people and, and being my jobs have been the same so it seemed like a natural fit and I did want to see, you know, I was enjoying it so much. I really did want to see it grow. And so when I was asked to to participate and then asked to start, you know, there was no organized play here in Athens. I was going to Atlanta to do that. So being a college town, I figured there was, you know, plenty of play here as well to begin to organize events locally. And then that just sort of grew as we grew events and, and, and grew to more and more people wanting to play and, and sort of advocating for the whole thing. And, and again, continued on all the way to the point I am now. And how has your um, reaction been to kind of the tabletop renaissance? Because you mentioned, I think, what, 2011 or 2012 starting uh, organized play. And around, I think, 2013, 2014 is when I would kind of bookmark the beginning of this sort of explosion of tabletop and then later RPG games um, because of, you know, things like the Internet and streaming and online video. So what's it been like for you watching this? Um, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, they're just the you, you get a much grander diversity of players at the table. Um, again, you get a lot more access. Um, certainly, I mean, there was the period there. Certainly, from from Paizo's perspective, we saw a lot of that specifically when D and D was sort of between fourth edition and fifth edition. We saw a huge player boost as far as number of people. But again, like you said, that was across the whole you know community in general. And it's, I mean. In truth, it's sort of nice to come out of the shadows in some sense. I mean, again, when I was in high school, D&D was, I mean, we we did it, but it was very much a small nerd culture that was not referenced. And then to see it on things like Stranger Things and see it, 
you know, immortalized and, and, and praised. Well, I mean, when, when you were actually there in the day of Stranger Things, that wasn't it. We were the, you know, we were the outcast in, in some sense of that. So it's, I mean, it really is great to see for, for not just RPGs, but for, for board games and for all that. It's, it's great to see. I do Gen Con every year and it's, it's amazing to go to, to just see that environment and see how many people and how many different people are, are involved, which is incredible. Yeah, and I think um, I'm with you on the. Uh, while I have not been in the system uh, and playing RPGs as long, I'm with you in the the um, praise of the fact that we've have such a large diversity of people coming in. Who, it's kind of great that geek is chic nowadays. Is kind of the phrase I've heard before mm-hmm. because um, we all, we really benefit from the the diversity and just the general increase. And also from that comes obviously the ability to run bigger and better games and more um events and conventions and then more materials that are published for us right yeah i mean again it's nice to see yeah so now it's supported i mean those people i mean getting to see people that i've known that have been able to you know make whole careers of of that and and not had to take that you know that grand risk of starting a a game from from scratch and just seeing all there isn't uh there's so many different flavors of whatever you want to do. So if you don't like, you know, again, if, if Pathfinder is not your thing, then D&D is, then go with that. If that's not it, go to Savage Worlds. If that's not it, go to, I mean, they've always been out there, but now they're all fully supported, full, you know, fully defined systems of all sorts of things. And then if that's not it, get into, you know, you can play, you know, pseudo board games that are sort of almost role-playing games. Uh, one of my current players kept saying, well, I'm not going to play a role-playing game. That's too far. It's like, you're playing Mice and Men. You know, it's pretty much a role-playing game on a board. And so eventually got them, you know, got them to come all the way over. Yeah, Mice and Mystics is a great kind of um, RPG light for most people because it super streamlines mechanics and like classes and races and even the die rolls. Um, But it gives you all the elements you want. It has a a board, you're rolling die to hit and, you know, trying to hit an armor class and all that stuff, which is paramount to what you do in most systems. And uh, then obviously uh, one of the things I've noticed as well is you have some like board games now, which are just basically an RPG, but in card form, like Gloomhaven, if anybody's ever seen that, I consider pretty much uh, Gloomhaven an RPG because it's got all the classes and races and you're doing a campaign, you're leveling up and you have your each individual um, uh, end goals outside of just, you know, looting the dungeon and killing all the baddies. So yeah, there's so much RPG content now and even just standard tabletop is a great transition into it. Yeah, I've actually purchased a couple of those type of games. Specifically, I've got a, an eight-year-old, and I want to introduce him to, you know, role-playing games. And then so I've I've kickstarted a couple of those sort of things exactly for that reason. So we do play some D and D as well, but I needed something with a little bit more structure, just because I think it's a, a better way to introduce a new player, whether he be young or or old. Actually, speaking of, we're talking about structure and kind of adventures. What are you uh, consider makes a what what do you consider makes a great um, adventure a published you know uh, adventure or module? Um, I do think it's a little bit GM specific. Um, so, but in general, I think you have uh, you have a good combination of both archetypes and 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 understanding you know the tropes that do make a standard adventure but with a twist that makes it original. Um, I think especially when you're, because 
anybody who comes to the table, it's it's the same way when you have any conversation with anybody, you're going to speak to, you know, different things that are, are common things. When you spoke earlier about having those common archetypes, those common uh, ways to describe a person, those using TV shows and all that, an adventure has benefits from the same thing. If you understand it, you feel comfortable, you feel like I'm, I'm moving, I understand the progression. At the same time, you don't want to be bored. So you need to see the twists, the things that make it a little different, the things that, you know, the color details that are like, oh, I never thought of taking that particular, you know, that old story, but taking it in this direction and off that way. Now, that said, you can have another thing. From my personal perspective, I also like adventures that are very vague. Um, I, I've got some sources that are literally like, here's a very basic outline you just run with it. And that's because I'm very comfortable with very little detail and, and just sort of running it on my own and just like, hey, as long as you give me, you know, three points, I, I can make it up all from here. So it is a little GM specific, depending on, on what's a better fit for you. But I think once you find the right system, I mean, you'll luckily, you know, if you look at Pathfinder Society scenarios, if you like one of them, you will like all of them because they have that same structure. If you like, you know, DD, you know, uh, Dungeons Dragons Adventure League scenarios, the way they feel, you're going to have that same feel. So look around, look at the different ones and, and figure out, you know, what company, you know, does Green Road and Publishy really like, you know, they write the right modules for you. Does this Cobalt Press, they really like modules that have your style. Find somebody and, and I think you'll, you'll find a, a good source for it. Yeah, I mean, there's now just such a great breadth of... Um and depth of content creators out there that you can pretty much find any system or adventure or thing that goes your way. Though I, I do want to ask you then, uh, since we were talking about archetypes, do you ever run maybe uh, either one you're running or one you're playing as a player at, at established adventure? And because you know it's structured and because you know it's going to have a beginning, middle, end, it has to kind of finish in the allotted time frame. Do you ever find yourself kind of guessing who done it? Like, you know, a la, you know, risk or not risk, uh, sorry, a la like a uh, clue or like, oh, I, I get what this reference is. It's a clever allusion to Beauty and the Beast. So that means this is going to happen, you know? Uh, I do. And, and, and when I find that, I mean, you can find that often in, in, you know, any sort of organized play just because, again, you have a limited amount of time. You know, you're going to get enough clues. I mean, the goal is to finish in that, you know, four to five hours. So you have to feed them the details, you know, quickly. Um, when that happens, I tend to lean back into role play, into the character and sort of even though I know it as the player, that doesn't mean my character understands what's going on. And I shouldn't, I should play it with the surprise of this character hasn't lived the same life that I've lived. So if that character is also the type that would work those details out, I could start talking about how this is the answer at the very beginning. I also could start expounding on something completely wrong. Um, I was running a table at DragonCon actually, and we had a set of players that would follow the things and one person was determined it was cultist. And the player totally understood that that was not the guilty party, but his character would believe that. So he kept leading the party. It's cultist. It's always the cultist. It's and so it makes a great RP advantage. You don't always have to to lean into your own self. Sometimes you can exit yourself and look at it as a different way. Absolutely. And um, what's also interesting is one of the things about organized play that I, I find more. Um, 
what's the word I'm trying to look for in English here? I guess I guess one of the things that does does, does help create sort of uniformity of experience and like a, a connecting thread between everyone is the fact that like there are those set beats that you're going to have and there's this concept of experience points and there's this concept of like we we all are kind of pushing towards a greater goal or a storyline that's been established before which you know i i'm like you in that i kind of like vague sort of um direction to my players because i want to make the world feel real but at the same time uh, also want to be able to like allow them to expand and go in whatever direction they want even if it feels like they're going to subvert my expectations uh, however, on the flip of that is the fact that like you'll have a lot of sessions to where maybe nothing really progressed the plot or maybe nothing really pushed towards, you know, an ultimate end goal is kind of a meandering uh, session or two, whereas what is great about uh, most organized play and especially the Pathfinder Society stuff, because I've actually read through and used a couple of uh, those adventures even in my own content is the fact that like it's so um, uh so I forget. I'm looking for the English here. I think "sushient" is the, the word I'm looking for. It, it's very, it's very good, and it's packed with content. But at the same time, pushing towards an ultimate end goal that all ties together. Well, I think. I mean, that's I mean, when you talk about you know playing an RPG. I think there's a very different. You know, I run my home games very different than I run my tables at, at you know at a con or or, or my Pathfinder Society tables. Um, because you do have to, I mean, you have to progress. You can't spend, you know, two sessions, you know, talking to the innkeeper. Um, again, at home, totally. I can make, I mean, I mean, we can do that all day and happy with that as long as the players are excited about what's going on and what it's going, you know, so you do have to get some progress done as far as that. You also have to play to a wide variety of players. You have some people there that are very much about the details, about the combats. That's what they want out of it. You've got somebody else there that's all about the role playing, so you sort of have to balance that and and sort of get that. To me, that's what makes one of the things I love about Pathfinder Society that they're so jam packed that you can sort of lean it the direction that the table is. If you have a very role playing table, there's lots of lore, there's lots of information to lean there. If you've got a combat table, there's a lot of combat there, but there's enough there for anybody. So when you sit down with that random group of people. You know, they're all going to enjoy that experience and they're going to have a similar experience because that scenario is literally being played all over the world. So at the end, if I talk to somebody about playing, you know, you know, you know, a specific scenario, you know, Frostburg uh, um, Captives, which is one of the early scenarios in season three, everyone who's played that, you can have that conversation because you played it similarly. The tables could be vastly different. I've ran, ran that scenario over a dozen times, and every one of them has done very different things. But at the same time, they all have a common experience because there is that, you know, that glue that's sort of holding it all together. And and I appreciate that as well. And and I run both because I enjoy both for different reasons. I do want to ask though, because part of the beauty of a home game is you're typically running it with friends or people who you might maybe know through like tertiary sources, and you can take you can kind of uh, take already into consideration your relationship with them, and there's a general understanding there that you know you can build a rapport. Whereas the difficulty of running uh, a game in an adventurers league or in Pathfinder Society or any sort of organized play is the fact that there's a lot of unknowns and pe people are coming in with their own quirks and their own. Systems. So I would ask you, what are the sort of challenges or things that you come into that you have to overcome? Or what are sort of tricks you use to quickly establish a rapport, get an idea of what people are like and how they're going to uh, coordinate with each other? 
Um, well, I mean, to, to open up and to, to be, you know, completely honest, when you talk about organized play, you know, talk about especially convention play, I mean, I will say, in all honesty, I have had my best and my worst tables um, at organized play. And that is because there is something when you get those group of people together that can create a chemistry that you've never encountered and something that can just be truly wonderful and so outside your experience that it is just an incredible experience. I mean, something you will you know talk about for literally decades because it's it's something so incredible. That said, you can have the opposite experience, which is just everyone at the table is not on the same wavelength. They don't play the games the same way you do. And so you have to sort of do your best to, to roll and, I think, live with the table. I think if you go in with a very rigid structure of this is the type of game that I want to have, um, you're not necessarily going to have that game. I think you you can. Like, I'm a role player, so my solution is to go to the table and you know, and role play and that draws other and try to draw other people out and get them to, you know, have some of that experience as far as a role player goes. Um, that said, it could be that people are just telling jokes and cutting up and they're not really role playing, but they're just having that. And you just got to roll with it. That table can also be awesome. Um, so when you go into society play, you know, obviously, if you're doing society play in your, you know, in your town, you're probably going to see a lot of the same people all the time. So you'll get used to that. And it'll be very similar to a home game because you recognize the characters, you recognize the people because, you know, it's the weekly or monthly game that you're meeting at the same location in your town. When it comes to a convention, just go in with the attitude that I'm going to have fun, that this could be a very combat intensive and we then could have a great game about, you know, really beating the monsters down. This could just be, you know, several people just been hanging out and they're just telling jokes and, and, you know, doing that. And that could be a great game. Or this could be really an intense role playing and we're all in character the whole time. And the adventure is really secondary because I'm really here just to interact with these people. And as long as you're willing to do that, you can have a great time at, at almost any table. Um, but you have to be flexible to do that. Well, in regards to flexibility, because I've run a couple of things, um, sparse kind of uh, sessions throughout the years, assisting in conventions, and uh, uh, one of the which is San Diego Comic Con. I've had two two times this happened to where I've, I've dealt with somebody who's either uh, very young or somebody who's dealing with some sort of accessibility or maybe some sort of cognitive, you know, or um, intellectual um, disability or disorder. Um, so that creates an interesting um, challenge for us as uh, GMs and DMs when confronting that. Uh, have you ever had to kind of deal with a player that's already coming in with a unique kind of perspective or unique challenge and how you adapt to that in regards to uh, helping them get through the adventure? Uh, yeah, all the time. I mean, again, because you just you never know what which players are going to come to the table. To me, the 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 key is there as a GM is is to first of all recognize what's going on as quickly as possible, so you you can you know be aware of it and to show attention. Um, as I go around the table, I'm a big fan of like when you encounter a situation. I'll literally I don't just listen to the people because some people are going to be more vocal and some people are going to be quiet or don't necessarily, you know, again, know what to say or have different social, you know, cues or younger and so are new to the game, you know, so you you go around and go, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? And individually address each other. So each person gets that individual attention. So it means that you can almost customize a piece of the game specifically for that person. And so you make sure that they're having that experience that they want. 
At the same time, that also sets a an expectation that everyone is getting their time. So again, and I, and I have this with my own son, you know, again, being eight, he wants the, you know, he wants the attention. He wants to constantly be the person that's talking to me, the GM, since I'm the person running the game. And you have to expectation is when I am focused on you, you have my attention, you control the game, you are having the experience you want, but you have to pass that same respect on to the person next to you. So being able to move that on and so making sure that that, that person, you know, is not interfering with everybody else's game. So everyone gets that, you know, everyone gets the spotlight. Everyone gets to see, you know, see the sun's shining on them. And, and you as a GM have to very actively make sure that happens. And sometimes it's trivial because everyone's laughing and it's just the chemistry's great. And sometimes you have to very deliberately go around and, and talk to each person and, and address them. But the truth is, it's like any any different perspective is great because they're doing they will react to things differently you know scenarios i've run dozens of times you know intro scenarios you get somebody and they have a different perspective and it's all of a sudden like i've never thought of it that way i mean some of those are the really the most precious moments so to to not give them that spotlight to to not focus on that would would be a disservice to them but be a disservice to the game and the table as well yeah, and you're very considerate. It's very evident into that as a game master, and that's what I think all game masters should. I mean, we're here to enable uh, everyone to have fun. Obviously, we also should have fun as well running the game. It's not a selfless, you know, uh, Mother Teresa situation to where we yeah. suffer for our craft, but at the same time, we have to be super conscious of making sure that everybody's having a good experience. And when somebody isn't, or when they have a, pr a new perspective and a new um, uh, challenge for us to kind of uh, live up to the, uh, our hope of making sure that we can uh, abide in the system in that matter, yeah? And I would say, I mean, I, I do want to comment on the, that doesn't mean that there aren't times that, that you should, I mean, there are some things, when, what you're talking about is people that have different perspectives or, or disabilities or, you know, uh, different challenges. You know, that doesn't mean that there aren't people that show up at the table that that are wrong and are, are detrimental to the table. And I mean, sometimes they have to be asked to leave. I mean, you've got to, you know, people can get up there and be racist or, mystic or you know or, or just not you know or you know aggressive and sometimes i mean you have to be aware of that as well but that's not where you should start your perspective i mean you should be there to try to make that work for everybody but sometimes you know you have to say i'm sorry you know this is not the right environment you're creating a hostile environment for the rest of these people or an uncommon you know environment they're not comfortable with and and we prefer you to move on and that's happened very rarely um and and so I'm, I'm happy that's the case, but it, it, it does happen. And you have to be aware of those as well. That is very good point as well, because I now I think about it for a lot of people, um, especially I've, I tend to run my sessions when I do organized play. It's typically after a panel that's about an introduction to or, you know, uh, explanation basics about, you know, RPGs. So typically the people who go to those panels are people who've never played before or, or maybe have very little experience. So immediately afterwards, since you're running the panel for those people who, uh, sorry, running the game for the people who attended the panel, you're going to run into um, a lot of people who's first impression of whatever RPG is, is your game, right? So the importance of having a good, um, you know, uh, morale and a good uh, feeling at the table, a good vibe, and, uh, you know, everybody kind of being on the same page and having a great time is so huge. Because I think, and I, I've said this on another podcast, if you listen as well, um, shameless self-promotion on my own thing. Um, 
I've, I've had situations to where I felt like I didn't, or maybe there was a situation that happened to where I felt like, oh man, I think that person had not as much fun as I wanted them to. And I've always felt this great sort of sense of uh, disappointment that I might have deterred them from what's an amazing hobby and um, way to express, you know, your creativity with other people. So you've kind of harpened on, uh, harkened back to a lot of the points I've said then, and I believe in as well. Yeah, I mean, again, we we are, I mean, and especially, and I and I will say, I mean, I focus on that a lot. I love intro tables more than any. I mean, I will run intro tables all day um, because you get those fresh perspectives. But it is, I mean, this could be the one opportunity to introduce those people to RPGs, and it could be years or, or, or decades before they return because of a bad experience. So you have to make sure. You know, that said, you can't you can't turn everybody else's experience bad for the benefit of that person either. So. It is it is a balance, but truthfully, I mean, my experience at, at, at tables, specifically intro tables, is if you just throw positive energy out there and just try to be have fun and enjoy it, you know, ninety nine times out of hundred, it will all work out perfectly, and 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 that usually does. Occasionally, things happen. We used to teach a a, a course that we used to have organization for Pathfinder Society called GM One Hundred One. And it had a lot of things about how to run a table and how to run scenarios and how to read them and not. But one of the last things you did is we used to call the deck of many situations. And it was a little role playing thing where you got around and there was a deck of cards that were all information situations that had actually come up at conventions that were conflicts. And we would do a little role playing session where you as the GM, we'd read that and we'd tell everybody else who your players what they're supposed to role play in their do. And then you'd come in the room and you'd have to deal with whatever the situation was. And again, they were all real. And, but it was really helpful to have that sort of concept of, Hey, we're all here as a community to make this work, you know, but when things come up, here are some ways you can do that. And, and again, I had never done anything like that until organized play. And it was very educational, very worthwhile to, to sort of see some of those and, and understand that, even though they're not all, you know, going to turn out perfect, that that you're there to deal with them and the community is there to deal with them and, and the help is there, which is great. And I never knew that until you just told me, David. That's a fantastic thing that they do. I'm, I don't, I don't even know. Do 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 does everybody do that, or is that something just specific to your society? Because that's, I think, such a great skill to have in life in general. Just if you could role play various difficult scenarios, I know that probably sounds like things you know, maybe um, uh, law enforcement and and people like that, and military probably do all as well, which I think a, a lot of people could benefit from as well. That's great. It was it was a program that was was built by uh, some people here in Atlanta, and then it was published, and I believe I haven't looked lately, but it used to be actually a free download on. On Paizo.com, you could download GM 101 and GM 102. And it was just, I mean, some of it was how to prep a scenario, like if you had to pick up a scenario with only an hour to prep and what to do. But the deck of many situations was, I mean, great. I mean, one of the ones that, that I can remember is, um, and you could, you'd also take it in what we used to call hard mode, which was a worst case. But one is someone's cheating at your table. What do you do about that? And that was normal mode. Hard mode was someone's cheating at your table and all the other players are supporting them and say, no, he always rolls that, but you still know he's cheating. You know, that's a hard situation to deal deal with at a table. And so stuff like that and just hearing about it ahead of time and watching everyone have a little discussion about like, well, how could you deal with that was, yeah, I mean, it was great. It really is a great way to sort of, you know, and the truth is those are values that are truth off the table as well, um, not just on it, as you said. 
Yeah, and I will definitely put that link if I can find it also in the description for all you guys listening, uh, guys and gals listening, so you can check that out too because I think that's a great resource. So moving forward, actually, one of the things I wanted to bring up because I, I the way we met was obviously through a convention, our local convention, Dragon Con. I had this realization come to me now. I've been going to conventions for uh, quite some time now, uh, not maybe as long as you, but I'm getting close to that decade number. And I've realized just only in the past two years how big of a deal it is that people who will sometimes go from out of uh, other states or maybe even other countries to a big convention like a Dragon Con, a San Diego Comic Con, a PAX, and they will decide that in my small amount of time, you know, two, three days, maybe even one day that I have here, I'm going to devote three, four, eight hours to playing tabletop games or RPGs. And that to me speaks volumes about how impactful and important the fact that they're able to play with a large group of people outside of their home game is. And I've always wondered, like, is it, is it the fact that, like, what what is what is it that is that these people are super passionate or is that for a lot of people, maybe because we're introverts, that RPGs are kind of like our safe, you know, not, you know, I'm going to use the term safe space. I know that gets a lot of flack, but I, I think it still works, kind of our safe space. So when all the madness of, you know, convention halls and panels and lines and whatnot, uh, we can go here and we feel at home or we feel, you know, at, at ease. Like, what do you think it is or what sort of combination do you think all that is? Uh, so, I mean, I think it's several things. I mean, I think if you look at the players that come in, um, you get the players that, that are there. I mean, that's all that they're doing that convention. They really are. And that could be because they don't have a local society. They don't have a gaming group they can play with. So this really is their opportunity to, you know, sit down and, and, and nerd out at a table all weekend and, and really get, you know, to that stuff. You also, there's um, a good bit of content that, you know, maybe you haven't gotten to play at home for whatever reason or is only offered at conventions. We do some special scenarios that's, you know, where all, you know, all 10 or 15 tables are all playing the same thing. Or if you're at Gen Con, all 185 tables are playing the same scenario and you have a collective win as far as that goes. So that could be it. Also, you get people that are, in, you know, exploring either rekindling, like they haven't played, you know, oh, I used to play D&D back in the 80s and here are my kids and I want to introduce them. Or I, I was interested in learning this game and I'm sort of the advocate for my home game. So I'm going to learn it here at the convention and then go back and, you know, take this. I saw a lot of that this year with Pathfinder second edition. People are like, Hey, I just want to play a little bit of this to see what it's like. I've been playing Pathfinder, you know, so I want that. And then sometimes you just get people that sort of wander in or like, what are you doing here? And it's like, Oh, I've always heard about D and D. I've never really gotten a chance to play. And it's like, sit down. Here's a place where you're not, you know, you don't have to buy a bunch of books. You don't have to, you know, you're in an environment that you know is safe because it's the convention you're at, and you're like, hey, I want to sit down and see what this is. So even if I don't ever play again, I can say, yeah, I know what that is when I talk to my friends that, you know, are into so that sort of hobby. So you get a, a big mix of different people that are that doing, you know, bringing those to the room. And, and again, it, it creates just some great games. Absolutely. And I love how you segued perfectly into one of the other topics I wanted to talk about. So Pathfinder, part of the appeal, uh, as we've known historically, is the fact that it's this game that's not jumping around in editions. And it's kind of anti Dungeons and Dragons in that regard, because for up until recently, there was only the one uh, edition of the Pathfinder while there, we were at fifth edition in regards to Dungeons and Dragons. And really, if you want to say, you know, 3.5 or is technically, you know, maybe the sixth edition, whatever. So Pathfinder recently got themselves a second edition. How is that being accepted and how is the reaction to that going for you guys from your perspective? 
Uh, I think it's going really well. I think that, um, I mean, the truth is that in d and I mean, it has many editions, but it's been around for a very long time as well. Um, you know, a new edition every eight to ten years, it's probably about that time. I, I mean, I played all, obviously, I'm a bit of an advocate of Pathfinder First Edition, but there's just a practicality. You know, you introduce one thing, you know, seven years ago, and you don't realize the effect that that's going to have on the game. You don't want to take it out. You know, there's some rules changes. There's There's things that over time... You get bloat because there's just so many rules and it's so hard for anybody to track them. You know, a game system needs refreshed. I mean, again, it's anything in life probably could could use the same refreshing about every eight to ten years as, as far as that goes and, and getting into that. And, and Pathfinder, I think, certainly, although it was a wonderful system, it was due for that. One of the things I, I, I like about Pathfinder 2, and I think one of the things that it's, you know, second edition is really doing well is that they didn't abandon canon, so all the lore, everything that you knew from the Pathfinder world, from Galarian, from a lot of that, a lot of the you know the ways it was, that all transferred over. They didn't start fresh there. They sort of continued the lore and continued the story, but at the same time changed the rules on the front end um, and, and did that. So I think it's, I mean, again, not, I've I'm playing the, it, it almost exclusively. I mean, I still play Starfinder for for my space, but I mean. When it comes to that, um, I'm really excited about that everything it's shown. I think it's a good uh, middle ground between, you know, a more complicated system and a simpler system. It's got some nice simplicities. They did some good rules changes that I feel it's a good sort of half step between maybe a D&D, which is less complicated, and maybe a Shadowrun or something that's that's more crunchy. And again... That's all to your fit. And those are all great systems. It just depends on, you know, what's how much how much crunch do you want in your peanut butter? And and I think Pathfinder did a good job of giving you enough, but at the same time making it very playable in, in second edition. Pathfinder, the peanut butter of RPGs. I like that idea. I think they should run with that. RPGs. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm glad that there's a positive um kind of reception to it and it ties into kind of what's been happening as we mentioned earlier in the state of tabletop games and geek chic and things like that where now new projects and new things can be launched and uh, even independent uh, rpg systems can now be created and there's an audience that wants to pick that up because the kind of stigma associated with that has been kind of cast aside and what do you then think because you've been in this rpg and this uh, kind of world this fandom for such a long time what do you think is going to be the future of the system is everybody going to end up having their own home game and we just end up just talking and having our characters visit each other's worlds whenever we hang out now um i'm i mean i'm hoping and, and i don't know i'm hoping that the, the table never goes away um, at this point, you know, the virtual games, and again, I've played mo- many massive multiplayers, but they're still not the same experience. It's not the same as sitting in that world and, and having that. And and I think, obviously, it's leaning that way as as, as, as technology gets to them. But there is there is a difference. There is a, a computer game can, can never simulate the table because it's not a one imagination. It's a collective imagination. It's a group of people. So... I think, you know, we're we're getting the advantage of there's just more people playing, which means although there are more systems and more different ways to do it, go about it, luckily the, the collective pool is so large that there's still a lot of people there. 
I assume it'll get more digital. It'll get certainly, you know, having PDFs for rule books and I mean, changing, having digital character builders and all that is all stuff that's come around. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's really become, you know, very popular in the last five years. And I think those are great because it makes it a lot more accessible for a lot more people. Um, I'm hoping at some point, you know, we don't flip over where people don't think that the actual social meeting of that being in the same room, you know, being that is, is going to go away. It might by the time my son is my age, perhaps, but, uh, but I don't think the aspect of that group, you know, that group imagination, that group think, that group society, I don't think that'll ever go away because that's just human nature. And and I think that's something that RPGs, that group escapism, being able to all think about something in, in a completely different way, I, yeah, that's going to be there forever. I don't know what form it'll take. Um, I'm happy that it seems to be people are coming back to the table and back to the board with the, the new renaissance and I'm hoping it's going to continue that way, but we'll see. I'm a little more optimistic in regards to the in-person thing. I think the beauty of the RPG and the reason it's also had this kind of renaissance is the fact that we've now gotten so um, digital and there's so many screens and interfaces between us uh, in other aspects of our lives that once people realize that an RPG had you looking a person in the eye and speaking to them and interacting with them and laughing and you know enabling each other to be supportive and not, you know, competitive or not being hyper um, uh, uh, stimulated through, you know, pop-ups and microtransactions and, you know, uh, quick gratification. It's, it's a long-form thing. Typically, RPGs are two to three, four. Maybe sometimes you do the marathon eight, ten-hour sessions on the weekends. And that's such a change of pace from the world we all live in, in either business or in, you know, the social media age that we live in, that I, th I think even as we get farther and farther and farther into our augmented and virtual reality, I think the appeal of being around the table of people as collective storytelling is what's probably going to keep that. Also, every person I know who uses a digital interface, I'm one, by the way, I have a monthly game that I can only do over digital interface because I'm spanning countries with the game. Um, we all have the same agreement, though. We would love to be able to sit at a table with each other instead because that experience is just so much richer. It is. And, and I think it is. I, I am I am concerned that if the digital gets good enough that it will be more similar, but I don't think it'll ever be a replacement. Um, and again, in some sense, I wish it was a little bit. I mean, I wish the digital experience for people expect just like you being able to play with friends that, that are all over the country. I mean, I do wish that level was one level more. At the same time, I, I also fear that, that someday that may, you know, be more replacement. But maybe if it gets good enough, then it won't really be a replacement. It'll just be a different way to interact. And yeah, we just, we just holographically just everybody shows up at your table like like it's Star Wars or something and you have these giant conversations and you have all these laughs and you look at the table and then once they're done you just press a button and then yeah it's just another empty table yeah that, that could oh, be an interesting be awesome. <laughs> yeah like I think that would be I think that that I guess would be like my obviously sci-fi futuristic fantasy version to if your friends aren't around at least every aspect you know aside from their physicalities they're present so you can all look at each other and laugh and have a, a blast mm-hmm but yeah, so as we're kind of wrapping up, David, uh, is there anything else you kind of wanted to talk about or anything you wanted to promote or just generally give your information out there for people who want to contact you? Um, I mean, in general, I mean, the main thing I can say is if you're interested in, you know, Pathfinder 2nd Edition or Pathfinder Society, you can go to the Paizo website, you know, certainly 
there are games all over the country. I mean, my region is, you know, Georgia and Kentucky and Tennessee. And so, I mean, I do Appalachian, so I do several states, you know, here. But, I mean, we've got venture captains, venture lieutenants. I mean, there's probably one within an easy drive. Your local gaming store probably has one. And if it doesn't, then reach out to us and we'll get one started. Um, because it is, we are about getting people not only into Pathfinder, but into all RPGs. And really, you know, extending this community. You, you know, the reason you're listening to this podcast and you're in this community is because you're invested in RPGs. You believe in what it is. And and what's better than to pass that excitement and that that enthusiasm on to somebody else? And it's it's a great feeling. Again, it's one of the reasons I love the intro tables. I love to see people who came to a convention, you know, and now I see them four years later. And they're instead of just playing that one intro, they're playing five or six different tables and they're and they've gotten their got their friends who have never played and they've recruited them and that really is a feeling like no other so i would i would recommend to anybody go out there and get it i can't support that anymore um yeah so what's your social media if people do want to contact you or email um wow i i because i am more of a behind the scenes and more being a nature of as i spoke about more physical i don't i mean you can certainly email me at um APPARVC at gmail.com. Um, that's my Appalachian RVC email and certainly uh, can get you in touch with anybody, either if you're in my region or in another. I'm happy to, to certainly answer any questions. Um, or if you're here in Georgia, georgiapfs.org, we have a great forum. We have a great set of series of people that will introduce you to games around this area, anywhere in Georgia, you know, but we can certainly get you in touch with somebody. Yeah. And for you guys out there, if you want to contact me, obviously the podcast is my RPG podcast, which you can find on Podbean, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to email me for the podcast, it's my RPG podcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's classy underscore Don. That's D O N. Otherwise, thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the table. 